Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to this May 24th, 2019 edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, and I'm joined again today by my co-host, Reverend Steve Macias. Good to be with you, Andrea. All right. Well, I think we have a really interesting conversation about to start, so let me pose it this way. Today's question is this, and what were the greatest influences on Calcedon's founder, R.J. Rushduni? And to address that question, we have his son, Mark who's Calcedon's president, who had a special relationship with his dad and has insights that come from hours of observing, assisting, and conversing with Rush. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Good to be here with you. I figure that we're truly talking to an insider because there are plenty of us who knew your dad, and obviously you only knew him from the time that you were born into the family. But you had the opportunity to travel with him, see him as he engaged guests that would come up to visit him and such. And I think that there are probably aspects of him that most of us not so much don't know, but don't realize what he considered the people that were most influential in his life. So how about you just take it from there? Okay. It's, in some ways, it's, it's a very difficult thing to to answer because as you know my father was very well read and so there were many many influences on him and he drew from a, a great and broad spectrum of life and theology and history and they all had some profound effect on him i think when when I've been asked to speak on my father and give biographical information, I, I usually begin with his Armenian background. And my father was born in this country, but he was actually conceived in the old country. And his parents escaped the massacres of Armenians that occurred during World War I in 1915 and were able to get to New York City uh, where he was born in 1916. But one of the most important, if not the most important influence I think on my father was his father. And he was very close to his father who we always referred to as Papa. And my grandfather had a photographic memory or near photographic memory. My sister believes he had the entire Bible memorized. She would periodically open the Bible when she was a little girl and read a verse to him and see if he could read the next, recite the next verse. And she said he was always able to do it. At any rate, he had a phenomenal memory and his family had lived in one area of ancient Armenia in the Ottoman Empire and in Turkey his entire life. 
the Ottoman Empire became Turkey in, in the early in the twentieth century, and the history of the Armenian people was very much on him. The history of his family, the position of responsibility they had, and the fact that the Armenian people were always in a difficult place geographically and religiously. Geographically, they were always between empires. Uh, they were between Byzantium and Persia. They were between Rome and the Mongols. And it was sort of the Armenia was the crossroads of the world for, for, for hundreds of, of years. And one empire after another always looked suspiciously on them because on the other side of those mountains, there was another empire. And each was always ready to assume that the Armenians might be disloyal and more loyal to those on the other side. And so they were always in a difficult position. But in, in the modern era, the great problem was with Islam, as it's now generally called, the, the, the Muslim Turks. And the Armenians had been treated badly for some time. And there were periods of persecution and conflict interspersed with long periods of peaceful coexistence. But the general problem was that the Armenians stuck to their Christianity and the Turks were offended at that. Because they had a biblical ethic, the Armenians also tended to be very successful, and they often had positions of wealth and prominence, and that, that was a, a source for suspicion. So they were not Turks, they were not Muslims, and they were rich, and so there was a, a jealousy of them. That's, that's a very, I think, important part of a Russian's background. You know, you see in his writing, in talking about minorities, there's kind of in his back of his mind this Armenian identity that allows him to take hard stands uh, on theological positions and have confidence in the power of minorities, probably based on that particular personal history. Now, from what, from what I know of, of your father's history, the grandfather was the first Protestant, right? So your family goes back, Armenian priests, back as far as Armenian priests go, right? And then your grandfather becomes a Protestant and with the American Presbyterian mission. And that really begins to change the Russian trajectory of their family, right? Yes. My grandfather was left an orphan when he was about 11 years old. His, um, his father was blinded and, and later died. And he was, he was blinded by Turks just as an act of random violence. His mother later died, as, as he would say, of a broken heart. And his younger sister then, then died. And he was then left an orphan about 11. And he went to live with extended family a little distance away in the city of Vaughan, on Lake Vaughan. It's the very center of the ancient Urartan kingdom that's mentioned as sometimes Armenia or Ararat in, in the Bible. And it was the empire that challenged Assyria from the north. But at any rate, they had this very long history. But he went to the city of Van, and he became very sick, and it looked like he wasn't going to survive. And so a, this relative with whom he was living, because she was displaced because of a, a per particular persecution, 
and he was on the street for a time. He was taken to the Armenian orphanage there because he was away from his extended family in, in Vaughan. And he was taken to the American mission, Presbyterian mission. It was a medical mission and a school and an orphanage. And he was taken there and nursed to health and he was given an education. And he was always very grateful to the the Presbyterians. And, and that was his entry really into Presbyterianism. Now, I should add that for a lot of Armenians, they didn't think there was too much of a difference between the Armenian Apostolic Church and the Presbyterian Church as far as the form of government. In fact, my father always described the government of the uh, Armenian churches as a combination of Presbyterianism and Congregationalism. And so if you look up Armenian churches in some of the larger cities in the West today, they'll likely either be apostolic, Armenian, or congregational. Those were the primary missions to, there were others, but those were some of the more influential missions to the Armenians. And you're right, they did have this kind of get-along attitude, and they had to live with Turks and others that was one of the part of their attitudes toward the Council of Chalcedon. Now, the reason they never went to Chalcedon was primarily because they were preoccupied with conflicts and persecutions at the time. They couldn't. They were also upset at the time that no one from the West was helping them. And they felt abandoned by the West. They felt it really wasn't so much the theology of Chalcedon they questioned, though they did question whether it was even necessary and whether the previous statements weren't sufficient. But they never did accept the Council of Chalcedon. And this was partly because of their attitude that they they had to be a little more forgiving. And when the West wasn't forgiving when they didn't accept Chalcedon, they took that as another Front. We all know these church councils all have to do with uh, politics just as much as they do theology. But uh, so the, the Presbyterian mission is how your father and grandfather kind of ministered in the United States as well, right? When they came to New York and then eventually right. uh, with your father's mission. Uh, well, I'm sure your grandfather had a Presbyterian mission in the States. Maybe you could talk about that. And then, of course, your father had ministries. Um, in San Francisco, in uh, with the Native Americans, and then Santa Cruz, and that's when you come in the picture. Can you talk about this formative time of, you know, him growing up inside the kind of the shadow of his grandfather's Presbyterian ministry? Okay, uh, let me go back first of all to the one something we that uh, Andrea mentioned, uh, I think earlier, and that was the matter of that the Armenians were survivors, and when you read what he said in his book on the American Indian that stood out to him when the American Indian identified the older generation identified the history of the Indians as characterized by the fact that they were survivors. It was very difficult to survive and the Indian adapted and did what was whatever was necessary to survive. And the older Indians looked at, the Americans' attitude towards them and the attitude that you should keep your old culture. And they thought that's just one more thing the, that the white culture doesn't want us to have. They don't want us to grow. They don't want us to have the good things that they're enjoying. They want us to stagnate in the past. They want us to be their museum pieces. So he, he saw that noteworthy as that the Indians considered themselves survivors and willing to adapt 
to a changing situation. And he noted that in, in the book that we published on the American Indian. But to get me you know, back to the, the Presbyterian ministry, when my grandfather, when he came to this country, you needed to have a, a sponsor or somebody to vouch for you when you came uh, to this uh, country. And the person he put down as his sponsor was Dr. Reynolds, who was in Boston. And he had been the founder of the Presbyterian ministry that was in Vaughan. The, the ministry closed with the massacres because it ended up the Turks were angry with the Americans, and they ended up attacking and destroying the mission, as well as the Armenians, because the the mission was harboring and uh, protecting the Armenians. So when my grandfather arrived in New York, my grandmother did embroidery, handwork, and so forth to make some money, and my grandfather went to work in an Armenian-language newspaper. While he was still in Turkey, he had been asked to go to Fresno, California, to be the pastor of an Armenian Presbyterian church. And he had refused because he he wanted to stay in, in Turkey. He wanted to stay. That's where his, his family had been for literally thousands of years, within a few miles of, of Vaughan. And now that he was in New York, he was given a, a second call, this time to a nearby church of 30 miles or so to the south of Fresno in a farming community of Kingsburg. So he started a Presbyterian church there. And when my father was about six weeks old and strong enough to to travel, they came by train to California. And so my father grew up in a farming community. And so my father grew up in the Presbyterian church, though my uh, a grandfather actually pastored four churches uh, when my father was about, I believe, nine years old. So that would have been in 1925 or thereabouts. He was called to a church in Detroit, Michigan, which was a congregational church. My grandfather served alternately a Presbyterian, then a congregational, then a Presbyterian church in San Francisco. And after my father left home when he was an adult, uh, my grandfather served in another congregational church in Providence, Rhode Island. So that that was uh, some of the history of uh, their association, but, but definitely firmly in the camp of Protestants. Although my f- grandfather always was uh, very familiar and very friendly with the Armenian apostolics. It was anywhere my grandfather went, he was he, he always met all of the Armenians in the area, including the apostolic. My uncle, Hike, remembers once when he was a little boy, he sat in a car between an Armenian apostolic priest and my grandfather in the passenger seat. And he said they had a back and forth. My grandfather had friendly, kind of in a friendly way, pointed out that he had said something incorrect in the liturgy. And the priest was sure he was wrong and Later, they went and looked it up, and sure enough, my grandfather was right that he had spoken in the the liturgy incorrectly. That was the memory my my grandfather had, who knew the liturgy from the time he was a child. He had that kind of a memory. It sounds that your grandfather was quite the pastor. In other words, he had a pastor's heart, and he always, from other things that I've read that your sister has written and conversations, that he was always, his heart was torn. He was here in America, but he was always concerned 
about the people still in Armenia. Would you say that your father's call to the pastorate was very much influenced by what he saw from his dad? Yes, because my grandfather would speak privately with my father. He was the oldest. He would speak privately with them about things in the old country and the massacres. My grandmother didn't like to talk about it, but my grandfather often took long walks and my father would accompany him. He would he would talk at great length about the history of Armenia because he wanted my father to know it. And that involved very much the fact that the Christians there had been persecuted because they were Christians and that, in fact, many had been martyred because of their Christian faith. The church there was an Armenian-speaking church, and he heard many of the stories in the first-hand accounts. He said some of his most vivid childhood memories were at these gatherings of Armenians, particularly when someone from out of town would come to visit the church, and they would always come to the farm, and uh, there would be a dinner, and maybe, and often many people gathered. And there would often be a discussion about, did you happen to know what happened to so-and-so? They were, all, they were talking about the massacres. We've never heard from him. Does anybody know what happened to him? And he said sometimes people knew where they were and that they didn't survive. And he said that was very common to him. In addition, my grandfather often took him on pastoral calls. And so my father was was very much kind of a part of my grandfather's pastoral life as a, as a young man. So he really grew up in in the church, not just as a preacher's kid, but very much aware of the fact that many in his family had died because of the faith. So it was a very very serious thing to him. He he never took Christianity lightly. And when he would describe himself as an Armenian, he was saying, I come from a family that is full of people who died for their faith. And so this is why I say his background and what he got from his father were very powerful influences on him. So here's a question that I'm curious about. Having, you know, raised children myself, having taught children you sometimes see somebody and you say, this is going to be a special person. Did you ever hear from teachers or neighbors or other relatives within the family the comment that we knew from the time he was little he was going to do something special? Well, all those relatives were rather old when I was around, and I heard some stories much later, sometimes at family funerals, about Rusos and how he was always different, always, you know, reading. And I do remember one family member saying they were teasing him that he was uh, turning the pages of a book. And somebody said, you're just showing off. You're not really reading that fast. And my father handed him the book and he looked up something in the book and asked him a question about something in the book. And my father answered him. And she said, I never challenged him again. (laughs) So they were amazed at his, the proficiency of his reading and the extent to which he he read. Do you Um, think your grandfather had a sense that your dad was destined to do things that were going to be important? Do you think your dad's father appreciated 
Rusas Rushduni the way we do? Yes, I think he he did. In fact, something I did not know until my dad's you know later years when he was ill, and I spent a lot more time with him, more a lot more quiet times with him. Because uh, for most of his life, my dad was busy. If you wanted to talk to him, you had to walk through the house. He was going here and there. He was doing this and that. And you basically had to follow him around while he was doing something else to, to have a conversation with him because he always had multiple things that he, he was doing. Well, in his later years, he spent a lot of time in his easy chair and, and he made a few comments. And I don't recall how it came up. This would, I believe, was when my father was in his college days or even seminary. And my grandfather was very worried about my father. And he got up this on the streets of San Francisco. This was when he was in a church in San Francisco. And he, in the middle of the night, in the wee hours of the morning, he got out and put his coat on. And he went for a walk. And he was very distressed about my father. And he was not a, my grandfather was not a charismatic at all. He wouldn't have considered himself a charismatic at all. But he said he felt God told him not to worry, that he had great plans for Rusos, and Rusos was going to be someone very important, the service of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why your sister named the, the biography Saved for a Purpose, because that really was the sense that they got out of Armenia, they got out of, they didn't die in the massacres because your father was to be born. I think it was very providential, and there are many providential uh, uh, events surrounding how they got out of Armenia, because most of the Armenians ended up in what became Soviet Armenia, and they were stuck there. They could not get out, and they went through famine and the Soviet years. And it's entirely possible that many relatives are, are completely lost to us. There are people who now have the name, some form of the name Rushduni. We have no idea whether they're actually related. My grandfather knew a family or two that had used the name Rushduni, spelled in various ways, but said they weren't related to us. In fact, he was a little offended that they would use the name because it's a, it's a historic name and it's, it's an ancient royal name. My my wife was at a a fundraiser that does the shoeboxes, Franklin Graham's organization, and she heard a speaker. It was an Armenian girl who had gotten a shoebox, and she was giving her story about what the shoebox gift had, had meant to her. And, and my wife introduced herself to her, and when she heard the name Rushduni, she says, oh, that's royalty. <laughs> Not many people know enough Armenian history that they would even know that. I remember a story where your father told that I think by the time he was 10, he had read through the entire Bible three times and pastor cautioned him because that wasn't appropriate reading for a young man. So I guess we'd have to say, and this is no surprise, that the Bible was a tremendous influence on your father. Yes, uh, that was a congregational minister asked him if he'd actually read the everything in the Bible with the emphasis on, on all of it. And when my father said he had, he intimated that he thought there were some things in the Bible that weren't appropriate for children. And my father thought that was an odd comment. And it was sort of a hurtful comment to him from a, a minister who he respected. 
Now, your father was pretty known for being able to read a wide, wide variety of authors, people that he wouldn't necessarily agree with, but he found their scholarship to be important and conclusions that they had made. Could you name somebody who he didn't agree with, maybe not even was a Christian, but he felt had a profound influence on him understanding the faith better? Well, he personally mentioned two of his professors in uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, that he said influenced him, although he put a Christian spin on what they had said. One was a, a professor in the philosophy department named Edwin Strong, and he said he didn't agree with a lot of uh, what Strong said, but he said one day Strong was talking to a student that had to do with evolution, and he said, don't ever get into a debate about origins as an evolutionist, because ultimately evolution goes back to, it can't go back to the a beginning, so don't go there. He said, start with a given that it happened. Now, his given was very different than a Christian position, but he never forgot that. He says, you start with a given. Well, he remembered that when he read Van Til, and he said, ah, here's a Christian view of the given. It's called the presupposition, and it begins with the sovereign God and his revealed word, and that we begin thinking God's thoughts after him. And so he said that that's something that, that stuck with him. Another professor he mentioned was a, a, a man who was very well known in the, the mid-20th century as an expert in medieval history, Ernst Kantorowicz. He said he was once talking about the iconoclastic controversy. And a lot of textbooks relate the iconoclastic controversy as whether or not you should have images in the church and icons in the church. And a lot of us thinking very simplistically think, oh, you shouldn't have them. Therefore, the destruction of the icons was a good thing. Well, according to Kantarowicz, it wasn't a question between orthodoxy and being non-orthodox because neither was really coming from a what we would call Christian perspective. Kantorowicz says it was about who had the right to claim to be the continuing incarnation of Jesus Christ. The church was claiming it, and the state was claiming it. And of course, when the state claims it, it always ends up in statism. And when the church claims it, it, claim, it turns into ecclesiastical absolutism and the heresies of, of Rome. And this idea of the problem of statism and the claim to be as gods very much influenced my, my, my father's thinking. And the whole theme of being anti-state is, is very much a part of his writing. So he mentioned those two in particular in his uh, university days as being very influential. But he had a, a wide spectrum of influence, and a lot of it wasn't good. He specifically did not go to the Presbyterian Seminary at San Anselmo, north of San Francisco, at the time, it was somewhere rural. I don't know that it is anymore, but I think it's now called something like San Francisco University or, or University or San Francisco something or San Francisco Seminary. At any rate, he didn't want to go there because it was openly liberal, and yet it didn't claim, claim to be orthodox, but it was obviously liberal. 
later when he was in the Presbyterian Church and still f- trying to fight modernism, one of the the president of that seminary actually said my father was demonic oh my. because he was fi- he was fighting the bureaucracy in the church and the liberalism in in the church. And my father commented in his journal, says, well, this is a positive sign because it, it means at least he believes in the devil. Uh, and perhaps soon he'll believe in God. In any, but um, he, when he chose to go to seminary, he went to a, an avowed liberal school, a Pacific school of religion. It was Methodist and Congregationalist, but it was openly liberal even in the 30s and 40s. He graduated in 44. And something I didn't realize at the time, I I discovered just a few years ago when I was going through some of his journals, he said about a third of his classes were actually at two other nearby seminaries, one Episcopalian and one Unitarian. So he had a broad exposure to, to bad ideas. And throughout his life, he was willing to read bad books books of people he didn't agree with. And if he thought they were, had a valid point, he would say, at this point, they're correct. I would like to go down that trail. Conventional wisdom today would say things like, well, you don't want to go to bad universities or read bad books because you'll lose your faith. However, it sounds like your father started off with the foundation of a biblical world and life view, and was always looking at everything else through that lens. Would you say that's an accurate description? I think he did. I think it was difficult for him when he did go to seminary, and that's that can be problematic for a lot of people if they don't have a very strong faith, and they're not very self-conscious about what they believe and why they believe it. It's maybe not for everyone to read the bad books. On that theme, I often tell people, my father read pretty much everything the Marquis de Sade wrote. And it formed the core of one of the books he wrote because he saw the Marquis de Sade, who hated God. He admitted he hated God. He talked about murdering God. He said he's really the modern thinker. And modern thought is really returning more and more to de Sade in their avowed hatred of God. And and they consider that Christianity is the problem. And so he wanted to understand Desaad from Desaad's own word. I wouldn't recommend that to just anybody. Right. And, and most of us don't have, don't read voraciously enough to want to take the time to read a lot of bad stuff. But he had firsthand knowledge of what people said because he knew he had read them. So very often people would bring up some philosopher or some idea that they thought would blow my father out of the water. And my father knew more about that thinker and had read more of him than that individual had. So from your point of view of the son of a famous father, do you think he was like the one in a million? Do you think that he truly ranks up there with other fathers of the faith or might you be a little bit too biased to answer that question? <laughs> well, I am obviously biased, and I can't assess his, his impact in history. I'm The reason we're continuing Chalcedon and continuing to publish his books, because I believe 
he has more to say for the future than he has to this point. I think his influence is going to be more in the coming years than it has been because I think he's so accurately addressed many, many modern issues. And a lot of these issues have not come to a head yet. We see them getting very critical. But I think he's one of those thinkers who began, who pointed out not only the problems of um, the modern world, but also its solutions. And I think a key to that is his writing on theonomy, because essentially, in a nutshell, theonomy is how do we obey God? And we can't be blessed unless we're actually obeying God. And that doesn't happen accidentally. It doesn't happen by just having some vague spirituality. We actually have to self-consciously obey God. And if we don't even have a means of doing that, it's not going to happen accidentally. So I think in it for any number of reasons, I think what he has written is going to be important for the long term and, and the church in, in, the, in the near future. One of the things that I think is really interesting is you can pick up any one of his, what is it, 30, 40 books? I'm not sure how many is. I'm sure you kept count. But, and, and read a chapter, and you get the sense that he just watched the evening news or that he has seen the latest post on social media. And so I think his insights are such that are just what you said, not only identifying the problem, but being able to see the solution. One of the things that impressed me in his writings, not so much that he would just read the bad books, but that he would also quote favorably and grant to various denominations and perspectives that they're right on this point or they see this more clearly. And that actually sometimes put him at odds with people who might have considered themselves closer denominationally to him, didn't it? Yes, and he would even note sometimes when when people would criticize the church or they would criticize the conservatives, and he would at times say their, their criticism is a valid one, even if their solution is not. So today everything is political. You know, it's... Uh, this side against that side, and nothing the other side says can be accepted, and everything must be criticized. And very often we do that intellectually, and it's a very lazy way of responding to, to other people, and it's very simplistic. I, I, that's, I think that's become more and more apparent, the shallowness of dialogue in general. Everything has to be black and white, and you take sides or you're part of the enemy. And that's very unfortunate. Now, I'm he, not sure your dad knew this while he was alive. Maybe he did. But there have been criticisms in many corners that he was a bigot, that he was against um, other ethnic groups, which is remarkably ridiculous when you consider he comes from an oppressed minority. But I think they misunderstood his love for America and why America was the place where he chose to be and work and do his ministry. I think people like to create simplistic things and a lot, a lot. So again, so much of our, our political and social dialogue is very simplistic and everybody's looking for reason to dismiss other people. And I think my father is treated in that way too. I think 
if they they don't like something of of him, they'll find something in him and they'll take it out of context. And he said some things that weren't you know politically correct today, but he said a lot of things, and people don't tend to take things in the sum total and balance them. And I think that's pro- a, a, a large, to a large extent, the problem with a lot of dialogue today. It's basically, I'm drawing a line in the sand, and I'm going to put you on this side or that side of it. My father wrote any so much, everybody can find something they disagree with him on, and they want to dismiss him. A lot of people like what he said about you know it, Christian education, but they hated his theonomy, they hated his eschatology. And so it's it's very easy for people to look at Rush Dooney and say, he's a dangerous thinker. Let's stay away from him because yeah. he wrote about so much. I've sort of inherited that. There are people who will tell some of my students, you don't want to be taught by her. She's dangerous. She's a feminist. I get accused of being a feminist. And, you know, she's very much into Rush Dooney. And yet the people who studied Rush Dooney have a very easy answer. Have you read anything he's written? And invariably, they have not. So I think there's something to be said for those who warn against reading Rush Dooney know what happens when people read Rush Dooney. And we don't hold him up to be the final word on anything. He didn't claim to be the final word on anything. His whole idea of Christian reconstruction was we need to start addressing every area of faith and life. And he never claimed to have the final word on everything. He said, you know, the, the, the word is the word of God. We just try to understand the world around us and our responsibility in terms of that. And we have to start talking about these things that we've been ignoring for so very long. He liked to hear other people, whether it was in, in art or architecture or, or law, things ab- about which he was not a personal expert when they were starting to talk about applying biblical law to these areas, when they were starting to try, trying to start thinking of them in terms of biblical application to their various disciplines, that's what he was really interested in. So he never claimed to be the final word on everything. And, you know, he was willing in his books when he felt that John Calvin or Martin Luther were in error or that their perspective was skewed because of the time in which they lived. He wasn't afraid to say so. And he never in the 15 years that I knew him ever took exception with someone just because they disagreed with him. Right. That whole idea of uh, taking sides, the base, like I say, it's, it's basically taking that, that politicize everything. You're with us or you're against us. It's, it's a very non-scholarly way of looking things. When you think of it, we're all, we're all just novices, really, in so many ways. We've just scratched the surface. Uh, we tend to look at things real simplistically. Exactly. So putting your obvious and natural and I think correct bias aside, what's it like to be the son of a very famous father within certain circles? Well, In a way, it's intimidating because I do not have the gifts of my father. I mentioned my grandfather's tremendous memory. My father had an excellent memory, outstanding memory. Near the end, he was telling me, he was talking about a textbook, something in a textbook from when he was in high school. And he paused and he couldn't remember the author of the textbook. 
of a book he, of a textbook he had in high school, and he said, "Pardon me, my mind is failing me." <laughs> he had a great mind, and I do, I don't have that kind of mind. So that in that way, it's difficult. It's intimidating how to recarry out its ministry. On the other hand, he left all these manuscripts. I can orchestrate publishing. I can't keep his things in print. Most authors die. Their material goes out of print very quickly because commercial printing only keeps something in print for a very short time while they're making money off of it. When they're no longer making money off of it every year, it's gone and it's out of print. And then you can only find it in used bookstores. And so a lot of material disappears. A lot of famous theologians, you can only find their stuff in used bookstores or maybe their one best-known book as somebody's reprinted it. And so we're trying to keep this material available. And that's something I can do. That is, so in a sense, he's made it easy for me because he's given me a number of things that I can do and I can serve the kingdom by doing what I'm fully capable of doing. And I think that's the key in as much as not all of us are given all the same gifts as each other and we take what God puts in front of us and we carry it forth. And I know he felt a lot of peace in knowing that he was leaving his ministry in your hands. And I've had many a person comment on how impressed they are with you in terms of how you honor your father still. They saw and they witnessed how you honored him when he was alive and that you continue to honor him afterwards. And I think that it's quite possible he will have way more effect on readers since he's passed than during the time he was alive. Yes, and the, the influence people have, is, is it's interesting how that works and how people come to him and how he's even being He's being translated into different languages. And a number of people have asked me, and when people usually in foreign languages come to me and says, can we have permission to translate this or or that? I usually just say yes, because I can't afford to do it. Uh, I don't want to try to, it's hard enough to get his, keep his things in print in English. I'm not going to be able to do it in a language I can't read or proofread. And so we usually just give them permission and don't, ask anything of them, you know, as far as royalties. So his influence, you know, is getting out there. But more importantly than his personal influence or what people think of him, it's he's begun to change the thinking of a significant section of the church today. And he's, he's moved the dial. When he started talking about Christian education in the 60s, people in very conservative churches became very upset, saying anything contrary to the public schools was considered unpatriotic. He was way ahead of his time in calling for the necessity of Christian education. But that the dial was moved. It actually, in a, in a way, went got ahead of him in the homeschool movement because people said, we can't afford to send all of our kids to Christian schools, and the Christian the homeschool movement took off before anybody ever really realized it, which is a good thing. It's a, it's a development of an idea that, that just began to snowball. And theonomy is 
quite common. There's still people who are scared to death of it, who condemn it as a heresy. And yet it's, it's an idea that, that has begun to really gain some, some traction. And a lot of, even a lot of people who don't want to use the terms now show respect for, for biblical law. And in churches that where, where it was unthinkable, you know, to quote areas of the old Testament. Now it's quite common. I think there are a lot more people who read your father's works and who started incorporating them, who never included him in a footnote or a bibliography. But as I like to tell people who sometimes get mad at that, I said, where Dr. Rush Juni is now, I doubt he cares. <laughs> right. He cares that because it was always about pointing people to Christ. It was always about encouraging people to take their marching orders from Scripture, not from him. Right. I was at a conference last year, and uh, a pastor was telling me he got a little bit heated. His wife was sitting next to him, and he got a little bit heated saying, I just can't get over how badly they treated your father. And I told him, I think he's over it now. Yeah, I think he's over it now. That's for sure. And his, and his wife patted him and said, you see there? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right. Before we go... Did your father consider one particular thing that he wrote of more importance than others? I mean, a lot of people would say the Institutes, but he, he wrote an awful lot besides that. Did he ever share with you what he considered the thing that he was most glad he got down on paper? I I don't know that he really did say what his most important writing was. Uh, I remember him once saying that the uh, essays he wrote for the California farmer that became a word in season series. Yes. He told me uh, near his death, he said, I want you to collect those articles because it was one part of his writing that he had not systematically kept copies of. And he said, I think that's some of my best writing because I wrote to an audience I didn't know. Each essay had to be self-contained, and I was limited in my word count. He particularly thought that 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 was some of his best writing, if not necessarily his most important writing. And I might add that his writing, too, changed over the years, and I I, I should note that. He, He began writing more to scholars, and his early works were heavily footnoted. He self-consciously gave that up in the 70s because he realized that academics were not going to listen to him and that his audience was the Christian layman. And if there was going to be change, it was going to come from influencing the layman directly. And so that's his style somewhat changed. He became much more conversational and much less scholarly and academic in his approach. And that was a self-conscious shift. Right. Although I know people who make a point of finding the books he did footnote along the way and have spent a good bit of time educating themselves on reading what he read. Yes. Well, I know there are also a lot of people who will use those word and season, and I believe there are seven volumes of it. They use it as their family devotional or a lot of large families that I know of use it as what they say before a meal. And so... There are some families that for three meals a day, they have one chapter in a word and season and they go, you know, they go through it again and again. So 
I think that he got his wish. Well, Mark, I thank you for sharing some personal recollections. I know I can say this as somebody who has been a friend of your family for many years and somebody who works with Calcedon, that there really is not anything like Calcedon. There are plenty of other fine ministries, and I don't want to take away anything from that. But really and truly, I think our tagline at Calcedon is resources for the self-governing Christian. And that's really what your father was all about, having people understand the need to govern themselves with the Word of God. Our magazine used to be called Faith for All of Life. One of the problems with a lot of Reformed thinking since the Reformation is the the emphasis on good theology is fine. But if you so emphasize the fine points of theology that you lose sight of the application, then understanding fine points of theology can itself become a form of rationalism and that that's the essence of the faith. The essence of the faith is not understanding fine distinctions in theology. It's it's obeying God and serving his kingdom. And I can tell you, I have people contacting me from India, from Africa, uh, from parts of Southeast Asia talking in terms of how much they benefit from your father's writing. And that's where I think because we've made the resources available that people can read online at no charge and listen to the lectures, I think that's where these requests are coming to you. Can we do some translating? Because they've been profoundly influenced. That's great. Listeners, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to comment on this podcast or give suggestions for future topics, you can contact us through Out of the Question Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.